0: that those he saves are his delight, that, that you and I are precious in God's holy sight. That, that The reason why we're here gathered this morning isn't because uh, God's delight in us somehow expires every seven days and we have to come in this room and kind of renew uh, and appease God's justice, but because God delights in us. That even in the midst of his holy, unchanging, good, godly will, that when he looks at you and I, in the midst of our sinfulness, he sees the beauty of his son, that he delights in us, and we get to celebrate that every Sunday morning as we gather together. My name's John Lee. I'm one of the pastors here at Bethany Baptist Church. It brings me joy to bring you God's word this morning. Go ahead and grab your Bibles and open them to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. We're using a Pew Bible. It's going to be on page 1064 uh, in the black Pew Bible in front of you. If this is the first time that you've used the Bible, um, the big numbers are the chapter numbers and the little numbers are the verse numbers. Going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 20. I think it was three or four weeks ago. Uh, I tried to preach the entirety of chapter 6, and I ran out of time. So I pushed 13 through 20 uh, Till next time, and we have arrived. I'm sure all of you remember everything before in chapter 6. Amen. Only PJ remembers everything from before in chapter 6. So I'll I'll read from verse 1, and we'll read all the way down to the end of the chapter. Hebrews 6. Therefore, let us leave the elementary teaching about Christ and go on to maturity. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works, faith in God, teaching about ritual washings, laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And we will do this if God permits, for it is impossible to renew to repentance those who are once enlightened. Who tasted the heavenly gift, who shared in the Holy Spirit, who tasted God's good word and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away. This is because to their own harm they are re-crucifying the Son of God and holding him up to contempt. For the ground that drinks the rain that often falls on it, and that produces vegetation useful to those for whom it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But it produces thorns and this but if it produces thorns and thistles, is worthless and about to be cursed and at the end will be burned. Even though we are speaking this way, dearly loved friends, in your case, we are confident of things that are better and that pertain to salvation. For God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you demonstrated for his name by serving the saints and by continuing to serve them. Now, we desire each of you to demonstrate the same diligence for the full assurance of your hope until the end. So that you won't become lazy, but will be imitators of those who inherit the promises through faith and perseverance. Verse 13. when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater to swear by, he swore by himself. I will indeed bless you. And I will greatly multiply you. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves. And for them, a confirming oath ends every dispute. Because God wanted to show his unchangeable purpose even more clearly to the heirs of the promise. He guaranteed it with an oath so that through two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to seize the hope set before us. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain, and Jesus has entered there on our behalf as a forerunner, because he has become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Lord, we pray that you would help us this morning to understand your word. We know that, that your word is a gift to us because we are weak, feeble. Our, our minds are easily distracted. Our ears don't easily hear Even when we do hear, it's difficult for us to understand. And so we ask, God, that you would help us by the power of your spirit to understand your word and to delight in it. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Eric Hoffer wrote this. Disappointment is a sort of bankruptcy. The bankruptcy of a soul. That expends too much in hope and expectation. Sounds to me like Eric Hoffer was having a pretty bad day. But I'm sure we've all felt this before, haven't we? Expectations have often charged bills that reality just couldn't pay. Hope lost, trust broken. And if you're disappointed enough times, you could start to shield yourself with cynicism. You, you say to yourself things like, fool me once, shame on me. Or fool, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. Or if you expect disappointment, you can never really get disappointed. To summarize, we, we start to live our lives with a motto that if we somehow don't have expectations, that we'll never be disappointed. At first, these things can seem to be wise, but it doesn't take long before cynicism becomes a bunker where we isolate ourselves from hope, from others, and even God himself. I wonder if if hope has dimmed in your life. I mean, this world can be so consistently disappointing that you begin to wonder if, if God's going to disappoint you too. If that's you... God wants to assure you in his word this morning to hold on. Not, Not just because you should or because it's the right thing to do. But because God is going to keep all of his promises. Because God is going to keep all of his promises. So this is the main idea for us this morning. To hold fast to the hope set before us. Hold fast to the hope set before us. You can see that uh, right there in verse 18, that we would have encouragement to seize the hope or to hold on to the hope set before you. And there are two sources of encouragement from this passage for why we ought to hold fast to this hope that's set before us. Firstly, God's oaths. God's oaths. And he gives two oaths, one to Abraham, one to Jesus. And the second source for our encouragement is is our hope being our anchor. And we'll we'll look at that more in in point number two. So God's oaths are hope. Those are two sources of encouragement for us as we hold fast to the hope set before us. Number one, God's oaths. God's oaths. Read, read with me again from verse 11 down to, to 16. Now we desire each of you to demonstrate the same diligence for the full assurance of your hope until the end. So that you won't become lazy, but will be imitators of those who inherit the promises through faith and perseverance. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater to swear by, he swore by himself. I will indeed bless you, and I will greatly multiply you. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and for them, a confirming oath ends every dispute. Every dispute. The author of Hebrews tells us to be diligent until the end, to, to keep going, to, to persevere, and to imitate those who have believed and persevered before us. And and so following that exhortation, he he turns to look at one example in the past of someone who has believed and persevered in the faith. And so he turns to Abraham. And, And Rock read this passage earlier in Genesis 22 that talks about this story of God's oath to Abraham where he swears by Himself, You see, Abraham had already been called out of his father's land into the promised land. And God promised him when he called him out that he would make him into a mighty nation. And that that through him, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And after 25 long, difficult years of waiting for an heir, Sarah finally gives birth to Isaac. And then once Isaac was grown... God suddenly commands Abraham to, to take his only son, Isaac, up Mount Moriah and to sacrifice him as a burnt offering. And Abraham takes Isaac up Mount Moriah, binds his son up on the altar, and then raises a knife to slaughter his son, and then an angel tells him not to hurt him. Abraham unbinds Isaac and offers a ram as an offering in his place. And it's after all of these things, after decades of waiting, after being commanded to sacrifice his his only precious son, it's after all of this that God gives Abraham the oath that we see here in Hebrews chapter 6. He says, I will indeed bless you. And make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore. See, Abraham is, is being lifted up here in this passage as an example of someone who obtains God's promise. And, and there's so many chapters in Genesis that cover the life of Abraham. And the way that the author here in this book sums up the entirety of Abraham's life. All the things that Abraham does in, in, in believing Lord and, and following after him, the two words that he uses to describe everything that Abraham does is waiting patiently. Waiting patiently. Abraham waits. The, the defining feature of Abraham's life is his patience, is his patience. Patience is underrated. See, it's not, it's not flashy. It's not always visible. But it's the power that keeps us steadfast, consistent, hopeful. I remember at, at Bryant's bachelor party, I, I, we got to see Scott Chan try to hang on to one of those bars where you hold on for 100 seconds and you get, get a prize. And, and I got to see him hang on for 98 seconds. I'm sure we've seen that challenge before in a carnival, right? You, you see a guy go on and try to hang on to the bar for as long as he can. At first, you might think to yourself, like, I could totally do that. But it doesn't take long for, for gravity to start to do its work. You start to see the arms kind of shake a little bit. Sweat starts to drip down the a guy's face. And, and then the grip starts to loosen. Next thing you know, you slip and you fall. Patience often looks more like that so you're you're hanging on to whatever your your hope is in and as life begins to do its work as as gravity begins to pull you down it gets harder and harder and God calls us to be patient as we continue to hold on to Christ as we hold on to Christ and life gets hard doesn't it You don't need patience when life is easy, but when life gets difficult, it's absolutely essential. Christian patience is the ability to trust God's promises through the trials of this life. I'm going to say that again. Christian patience is the ability to trust God's promises through the trials of this life. In other words, patience is this determination, the the belief that what you're doing right now, what, what God commands you to do is the right thing to do, despite everything around you telling you to believe the opposite. It's proactive. It's the conviction that you can keep going, that you need to keep going, to keep trusting, to keep persevering. So usually when, when trials come in our life, we, we end up being tempted to, to veer off in one of two ways. We, we become pushy or we become passive, right? We try to force things to go our way or we try to detach ourselves from situations. But, but God here in this passage is calling us to avoid these two pitfalls, to be proactive without being pushy, to be patient without being passive. I wonder for you what, what you tend to do when you're frustrated. Do you frequently think, I, like, I have to fix this right now? Do you obsess over your plans and your schedule while neglecting to pray? Do you lash out when someone doesn't do the thing that you want them to do right away? Or maybe you, you think often, that's not my problem. Do you avoid thinking about the trials in your life? Do you jump from distraction to distraction, preferring to share memes online while avoiding difficult conversations with a church member? See, we we tend to swing back and forth from forcing solutions to forgetting our problems. But faithfulness to God looks like patiently persisting in faith as we obey him. See, patience requires Faith, pushing us at as core, believes that our own ability can somehow achieve God's promises. And passivity believes that our obedience doesn't matter for God's promises to come true. See, you can only be truly patient to, to trust God while proactively obeying him when the hope of God anchors everything that you do. And it's that hope that gives us the motivation to obey God. And that's precisely what Abraham did in the entirety of his life. That, that his life could be defined by this effort to believe God through difficult trials, through even through his own sins and failures. And so many of you here this morning are examples to me of godly patience. I feel like the, the younger we are, the more we tend to possess kind of illusions of grandeur. About, about this kind of significance that you're going to achieve through doing good, great work. And usually you don't have to correct someone out of that. Life just does its thing. You start to realize my mind doesn't work as fast as it used to. My joints are starting to creak. and After a while, you start to get relieved that you even made it this far. If you want to see titans of the faith, look no further than the shut-in section in your church directory. So many of you in this, room, in this room have demonstrated to me the power of patience in your endurance. Continuing to trust God in difficult times. Holding on to convictions when it seems like everyone around you is telling you that you're crazy. Saying the gentle word instead of lashing out in rage. Trusting the promises of God through the pain of trials. See, if if life has brought you low, but you're still hanging on to Jesus, I look up to you. And God here this morning wants to encourage you to keep going, to keep going. One way that we practice patience as a church is through our prayers. Every time that we gather together to pray, especially in our evening gatherings, when we prioritize the time to gather together and pray, is because we believe that ultimately we're dependent on God to fulfill his promises, that, that we need to acknowledge that we're not in control of things, and also that, that God actually hears our prayers and will fulfill everything according to his will. The reason why Abraham is able to wait patiently is because he trusts God's promises. In Hebrews 11, which we'll get to eventually at some point, uh, he talks about how even when God was about to sacrifice Isaac, the reason why Abraham was willing to lift his knife and killing his son was that he had so much confidence that God would fulfill his promises that even if God had commanded him to kill his own son, that God would still find a way to fulfill the promise that he gave Abraham, even if It meant raising up his own son from the grave. That's a powerful kind of patience. And for you and I, we can be patient just like Abraham was. Because God's promises are dependent on God, not us. Look at the promises that that God gives Abraham that you can see here in verse 14. He says, I will indeed bless you and I will greatly multiply you. Who's the one that's acting here in verse 14? God. God is the one who acts. And we, in this promise, are the recipients of God's work. God blesses. God multiplies. And we receive. You see, if God makes a promise, you can be sure that God will Do it. If God makes a promise, you can be sure that God will do it. There's no one in the world that's more reliable than God. That's why the author of Hebrews notes here that God doesn't swear by anything greater, but he swears by himself. Look at verse 13, and I'll read 16 after 13. It says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater to swear by, he swore by himself. For people swear by something greater than for themselves, and for them, a confirming oath ends every dispute. Every dispute. Now, we've all sworn before. I'm not talking about curse words, right? I'm saying, I mean, saying things like, I swear to, to show that you really mean what you're saying. Right? To assure someone that, that the words that are coming out of your mouth is, is really true. To, to elevate the promise beyond just kind of an initial kind of phrase that can float away with the wind. And we do this all the time. We, we always back up our words in various ways when we're serious to show that what we mean is really truthful. Right? Think about courtroom. Right? There's a reason why people put their hand over the Bible or the U.S. Constitution. It's because they're appealing to a greater power, right? They're saying, I swear to tell the truth and nothing but the truth, I think, is what I heard in daytime courtroom TV shows, right? And those of us who live in apartments usually provide a security deposit, right? The reason is because our word is not that reliable on its own. But you know what's more greater than whatever word I could give my apartment owner? Money, Now, does the author of Hebrews think that it's appropriate for Christians to swear in general when you give a promise? like to constantly be swearing to God or or swearing to something else. No, I don't think that's his point. If you read Matthew 5, 33 through 37, Jesus talks specifically about how we in general shouldn't be swearing oaths at all. Instead, let your yes be yes and your no be no. In other words, um, if you need to swear an oath to someone greater than yourself in order for someone to believe you, there's a greater issue. The issue is not your swearing. The issue is your character. People just don't trust you. Uh, and so so be a better person, right? Like actually say what you mean and follow through with that so that you never have to give an oath. I don't think the author of Hebrews is giving us a tutorial on kind of how to give oaths in our lives. Rather, I think the author's point is that if God has made a promise that he will fulfill it. And God, similar to how we swear in our society to other kind of greater powers, also swears. But because he has nothing greater to swear to, he he swears by himself. See, whether we're providing collateral for a loan or, or we're saying in the playground, cross my heart and hope to die, we intuitively know how to appeal to greater power to communicate to someone else that we mean what we're saying. See, those oaths at at the root, what they do is they provide assurance. They give the person that you're talking to a a semblance of security that they can actually trust what you're saying. And God, in order to assure us to end any dispute or protest that we might have against his promise, swears by the only thing he can swear by, himself. Why? Because there's nothing greater that God could appeal to. God can't appeal to a super God there's no one greater than him. And so he swears by himself to quell any protests that we may have about God fulfilling his promises. In other words, if you have protests against God or you have questions about his goodness or, or you look at the muck and the sinfulness of your own life and you're starting to ask yourself whether or not God's going to pull through whether or not God's actually going to be there for you through this trial. Or whether or not God's still going to love you despite your sinfulness. God is saying, I swear to you by myself that I'm going to fulfill all of my promises. And this isn't an exasperated, frustrated God telling us to kind of get off his back. The reason why God provides an oath is because he wants to. Because he wants to. Look at verses 17 through 18 here. It says, because God wanted to show his unchangeable purpose even more clearly to the heirs of the promise. He guaranteed it with an oath. So that through two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to seize the hope set before us. See, the the reason why God provides an oath isn't because we're annoying, but because God wants to. He wants to. God wants to show us his unchangeable purpose here even more clearly. Even more clearly. Now, it's not like God's words before were confusing as much as what God wants to do is convey things to us in a way that's actually convincing. In a way that's actually convincing. You see, God doesn't just care about being right, right? Like, why well, is was true? You either believe it or you don't. No, He wants to make sure that you and I, those who are going to inherit the promise of God, if you're in Jesus, to make sure that we actually get it, that we understand it. And not just intellectually, but emotionally. Emotionally, See, God does this with Abraham. The, the first promise that he gives Abraham is 25 years before that oath. Right? Oh, actually, more than 25 years, probably 30 plus years before that oath. It doesn't happen in Genesis 22. It happens in Genesis 12. And God could have just not repeated himself, expected Abraham to keep believing that promise that God gave him. Right? I told you once. Get it and move on. But no, he repeats it again in Genesis 15. He repeats it again in Genesis 22. God is far more loving than a guy who just kind of gives one statement, expects you to understand it, and moves on. He continually repeats his affirmation of his promise to Abraham over and over and over again. And it's the same way for us. It's the same way for us. It's easy for us to become discouraged or or lose sight of God's promises to us, for old truths to, to grow stale through the cynicism of time. But God, out of the desire of His heart, wants to show His purpose to us even more clearly, to convince you that He's going to pull through on His promises. And since we're so eager to muck up our own view of God's promises, God is happy. He delights to help us see it over and over and over again because of his love for us. And if you think about it, God could have just kind of given us a bullet list of facts of what to believe, right? Kind of like our our statement of faith. Just here are the truths about who I am and how the world works, believe it, and I'll see you in heaven. But he doesn't do that. He provides us more than just a list of facts. He gives us a whole book filled with history, poems, letters, promises. Why does God do that? Because he loves us. And he wants to assure us of all of his promises. So that when you read Genesis and you see the trials of Abraham's life, and even Abraham's own sins, and you see God's faithfulness in it, you would receive encouragement to keep persevering. So when you can't put words to your own sorrow, you could read the Psalms of lament and, and help, receive help to articulate how you really feel. So that if you feel that your faith is shaking and you start to question God's unchanging promises, you can read this letter in the book of Hebrews and feel your trust getting restored. You see, this whole book that you hold in your hands, this Bible, is a work of love. A work of God's care for us. And the author of Hebrews is saying that God's oaths are also a work of love. They cares for us as a loving father. That when the thunderstorms of life come and, and startle us and, and we run to Jesus, he doesn't just dismiss us by saying, it's not going to hurt you, go back to bed. Rather, he wraps us up in his arms, let us cuddle with him in his bed and make sure that we feel safe. And one way that he does that is by providing these oaths, by swearing by himself. And that, and that love is rooted in his unchangeable purpose. God is unchanging, and he gives two unchangeable oaths. One to Abraham and the other to Jesus as our high priest. We, we read that promise in Hebrews. I'm sure all of you remember it. I'll read it just in case. Psalm 110, verse 4. The Lord has sworn an oath and will not take it back. This is to Jesus. You are a priest forever, according to the pattern of Melchizedek. Two oaths. To Abraham, I will surely bless you and multiply you. To Jesus, you are a priest forever. And it is impossible for God to lie in anything that he says. In other words, what the author of Hebrews is saying here is that if you're in Jesus... Right? If you're actually in him, if you've trusted him, if you're holding on to him, that God will never deny you. He can't deny you because it is impossible for God to lie. His promises are unchanging. In fact, for God to deny you if you are in Jesus is for God to deny himself. That's what we were saying earlier. My God is reconciled. He His pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for his child. I can no longer fear. So what do we do in light of these things? The author of Hebrews urges us to seize the hope that's set before us. See, God's greatness, his unchanging nature, his holiness is our guarantee that hope is certain. That we've taken refuge in Christ, that we've fled to Him, that we've hidden ourselves in Christ. And because we've done that, hope is coming. Hope is coming. And that guarantee motivates us to keep going in the faith. Like the man who discovers treasure in the field and sells all he has to purchase the field, that act of selling, that labor, is easy for him because he understands the value of what he's going to obtain. In the same way for us, when God's promises are sure, when you're sure that God's going to pull through on every promise in his word, that he is going to do what he says he's going to do, the yoke of obedience becomes lighter. The burden becomes easy. See, everything that we do as Christians is 100% worth it. There's not a single thing that Jesus is going to command you to do that won't be absolutely worth it. So persist in holding out to the hope set before you. That's reason number one, because of God's oaths. Here's reason number two, our hope. Our hope. Read verse 19 with me. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure it enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. Jesus has entered there on our behalf as a forerunner because he has become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. See, we we hold on to the hope before us, and that hope anchors our souls. I almost spilled. Firm and secure. An anchor is almost a perfect illustration for what Christ does for us. See, an anchor keeps you from drifting, right? The ocean's currents, the winds, even storms could come. An anchor makes sure that your boat stays in place, right? Now, now anchors don't remove problems, do they? They don't get rid of storms. They don't get rid of challenges. But what it does is it keeps you in the same place so that you can stay on the right track. In the same way, Christ doesn't remove trials from our lives, but rather keeps us rooted in him so we don't fall away. See, anchors are weighted and and hook into stable ground under the unstable water to keep you and I safe. In the same way, Jesus is our anchor. But But in this case, in this letter, the anchor actually doesn't go down, but goes up. Did you notice that? It goes into the inner sanctuary, behind the curtain, into the very presence of God. The author of Hebrews is going to use this image of, of the temple and the tabernacle, and Jesus as a great high priest. It's kind of like an image for us to understand in terms of what Jesus is going to do for us after he left and went up to the clouds. Like when Jesus goes up to heaven, right, he's not just sitting on his throne, kind of twiddling his thumbs until his father says, like, Go! he comes back on a white horse. God's actually doing things, He's actually expecting, uh, he's actually actively functioning as our great high priest. And the author of Hebrews here uses this image of the inner sanctuary to, to pair with the function of what the great high priest does. See, what the inner sanctuary is, is is when Israel was kind of going through the wilderness and eventually landed in Israel and and God was dwelling amongst his people, he would dwell in what was called the tabernacle. Okay, if I could kind of paint a bird's eye view, right, like picture a little rectangle box here, right? If this is kind of like the tabernacle grounds, you have the outer courts. Right, where you have a bunch of altars for sacrificing animals and whatnot. So, so there's slaughter tables where things would go down. And on, inside kind of this fence outdoor area, you also have this indoor kind of building or, or tent, right? And that would be considered the temple. And inside there, you would have like the menorah, the tree that symbolizes a tree of life, other things. There's an outer veil. And then inside that room, there's an inner room, right? It's covered by a veil. And inside there is the Ark of the Covenant, Right? And that would be considered the inner sanctuary, the, the holy of holies, where, where God himself would dwell. And the great high priest could only enter there once a year to, to offer a sacrifice on behalf of the whole nation on, of Israel on the day of atonement. So what the great high priest does is he goes into the inner sanctuary, the holy of holies, and offers a sacrifice on behalf of his people. And what the author of Hebrews is saying here is that our anchor, Jesus Christ, enters into that inner sanctuary, enters into the holy of holies. And not just an earthly tabernacle with Israel, right, kind of built on the dirt with kind of random little physical objects and, and physical curtains that have to get hung up, but into heaven itself, into the real thing. It's the deepest, most tangible presence of God, the Holy of Holies behind the curtain. John Owen puts it like this. He says, what is behind this curtain in heaven? Not an ark or a mercy seat, not tablets of stone and, and cherubim, the work of human hands, but the things that were signified by them. God himself on a throne of grace, and Jesus Christ, as the high priest of the church, as the right hand. God, the Father, as the author of the promise of grace. And Christ, as the purchaser of all mercy. The Council of peace being between them both. Here, hope fixes itself. To hold the soul steadfast in all the storms that may come. You see, if you want your anchor to be rooted in stable ground, In the midst of unstable waters, there is no place more stable than the deepest, most intimate presence of God himself. That anchor isn't going anywhere. And not just on the earth below, but it's in heaven above. And look at verse 20 again. It says that Jesus has entered there on our behalf as a forerunner, as a forerunner, because he has become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So what does Christ do on our behalf? He enters the Holy of Holies as our great high priest. He intercedes for us. And this eternal priesthood, where where Christ covers us with his blood, we'll, we'll look more into that Next week, because that's all of like chapter seven. So I don't want to spoil chapter seven. I get to preach a good chunk of this book back to back, so I'm gonna save that for next week. Right. But notice here in verse 20 that it describes Christ as our forerunner, as our forerunner. That that Jesus goes before us. He goes ahead of us. Which means that if he's our forerunner, we are coming after him. Right? We're coming. After him, if, if Christ is our anchor, then he's not just an anchor. He's our grappling hook, right? Or, or to put it another way, have, have you guys ever watched Batman, the animated series? What, what does Batman do in order to get on top of big buildings? He uses his grapple gun, right? He shoots, anchor hooks onto the edge, and pulls him up, right? It's the same illustration here for us in terms of what Christ does, that Christ goes before us into the heavenly places, right? And as our forerunner, we're coming after him. And all you have to do to ascend through the clouds is to keep holding on as he pulls us up, right? We know where we're going. We're going to go through the clouds into the very presence of God, to the throne of the king of all kings. See, if you're not a Christian, this is the hope that we want for you. Christians aren't just here to tell you about how bad you are or even to provide you tips on on how to improve your life here. The truth is, even if you follow kind of every tip in the book, if you read every self-help book available at Barnes & Noble and you hyper-optimized everything that you have in your life and lived the best life that you could right now, it still would not satisfy you. We aren't created For a broken, sinful world. We need a hope that's going to go beyond this work week or this decade, even this life. And God created the world perfect, sinless, and created man to be a steward and to care over it. Instead of obeying him, you and I disobeyed him and rebelled against God. And because of that disobedience, the world has been fractured. It's actually broken. We live in a broken world that's not going to be able, able to fulfill you and I. And because of our sin, God has every right to pour out his judgment on you and I, and to punish us in hell forever. But God, in his kindness, did what even the angels in heaven couldn't predict. He sent his only son, Jesus Christ, He lived the perfect life that that you and I can never live, truly man, truly God. And on the cross, God poured out the judgment that you and I deserve on him. And Jesus died. But three days later, Jesus rose from the dead, victorious over sin and death. And he ascended to heaven into this holy of holies where he testifies before God right now. For those who are in him and trust in him alone for salvation, that we're covered by his blood. Satisfying God's perfect justice and offering us forgiveness and grace. So so if you turn from your sin and trust in Christ, you can be forgiven and have everlasting life in him. That offer is available for you this morning. So grab on to Jesus. We would love to talk to you more about what it would look like to to follow Jesus. Feel free to talk to any of the members that you see here or or talk to me after the service. We would love, love, love to talk to you more about Jesus and the promise that we have in him. And in Christ, for you and I, we become heirs of the promise. We become inheritors of this promise of God. That when we look at the promises that God gives to Abraham and to Moses, for every character that we see in the Bible up until the point of Christ. Even the promises that God gives to Christ himself, that all those promises accumulate into blessings for you and I. Do you understand what it means for Christ to be our great high priest forever? If Christ is our great high priest forever, that means that we're always going to have a substitute. That our hope is not going anywhere. That even if we sin this week, and you will sin this week, Christ will cover you with his blood. Even when you feel weak, or the trials of his life wear you down, or you feel your fingers slipping from the bar, that Christ will hold on to you. And God has promised that he will continue to do so. So we are the inheritors of those promises. We get to inherit Jesus. We get to inherit God's blessings. This is precisely what we celebrate when we baptize people, right? Buried with Christ, raised with him to new life. When we baptize someone, right, and submerge them in the water and lift them up, we're telling the world that we're following after Jesus, that we're following after him. And just like how an anchor is buried in the depths of the sea where you can't see the bottom of it, we get to follow Christ into an unknown tomorrow, into an unknown tomorrow, even into the unknown of death itself. You see, when you're in Jesus and you die with him and you rise with him, even death is just clouds obscuring your vision on your way to heaven. And while tomorrow might look gloomy, while death may strike fear into our hearts, when you pass through the clouds of death, you'll be able to see the full blazing glory of the sun. Face to face, clouds behind, life secure, and the calm will be the better for the storms that we endure. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your promises here in Hebrews 6. We ask, God, that that these truths, these oaths, this hope that we have as an anchor would, would encourage us to continue to hold on to the hope that we've received. We can only do that by your power and your strength. So we ask that you would help us. In Jesus' name, amen.